Hey everyone, welcome back to this episode of Happy Hour History. I am Natalie Harpin and there's some things I wanted to talk about. My beverage today is just water. So I'm drinking my favorite water, which is actually Aquapana, the still water. Um, I know it's, I don't know. I don't really see it around that much. I know a lot of people drink you know, like Fiji or Voss and yeah, it's bougie, but I really enjoy it. And I like the one in the glass bottle. So that's what I'm drinking today. Today's podcast is going to be about activism and following the money and some suggestions about ways in which to question organizations if you want to be involved, but are sort of wondering, you know, where's the money going and you know how to do that effectively. So What I want to start out by saying is that there's been a lot of things in the news in the last couple days about people who have been questioning, you know, different activist organizations, as in larger chapter organizations, and asking where the money is going that's being donated on a national level. So this came about, what, this, the Grammys was this last week, weekend, and, um, There were some people who were questioning Black Lives Matter as a national chapter. Now, when I reference Black Lives Matter in this podcast, I'm going to be talking about the national group, but I am not speaking to local, you know, um, on the ground chapters that, you know, are a part of the national group potentially, but, you know, are doing more things in, in separate and individual communities. So the first thing I want to say is that there are a lot of, there's a handful of people, but I'm sure there's more than even I'm aware of, who have sort of made money off of the pain of family members who, well, people's family members who have been killed due to racially motivated events like police brutality and organizing to stop those things, right? And fighting grassroots to end those things in order to protest the events that become national that the rest of us learn about via social media. So one of the people who has been called into question for years about this is Sean King. Now, I noticed that a lot of people, if you follow me on Instagram and I follow you back, I'm not going to call anybody out, but I noticed that a lot of people who I follow constantly repost things from Sean King. Now, I do not know him. Um, I'm talking about this objectively speaking. He is an activist and writer, but over this last weekend from the Grammys after Samaria Rice, who was Tamir, who is Tamir Rice's mother, Tamir Rice was the young black boy, I think 11 or 12 years old, who was killed in Ohio when he had a toy gun. The police just rolled up on him and shot him without questioning or, you know, noticing that it was a toy gun. He said that Samaria Rice was putting her anger toward the wrong people, and he inserted himself into this because Mrs. Rice was questioning Tamika Mallory. Now, Tamika Mallory is another activist. Uh, I only heard about her within the last couple months um, and sort of seen her on the news. I tried to, you know give myself breaks from mainstream news channels just because it can be very overwhelming. And because I am from the group that is largely being affected, sometimes I have to take breaks from that. But she has been, excuse me, Miss Mallory has been um, recognized by the NAACP. Another person who's pretty popular, I would say probably one of the more popular people like Sean King is Van Jones. So he is a news and political commentator. He's usually on CNN. Um, 
Yeah, but um, he is a political commentator. And then the fourth person who's come out in the last couple months, at least on my consciousness, is Benjamin Crump. And Crump is an attorney at law. So he has volunteered to represent some of the families who've been affected by police brutality and violence um, with regard to justice for their families and or settlements. So um, like I already mentioned Samaria Rice, right? Mrs. Rice called out Tamika Mallory for, and really Black Lives Matter as a national group, because she's claiming that, you know, they're taking over from the families and, you know, taking the microphone from them, so to speak, to talk about their own experiences and what they want in the forms of justice. Now, in a minute, I'm going to talk about how respectability politics plays into a lot of this, but most people were only focusing on the fact that Mrs. Rice was, you know, calling out Tamika Mallory on social media and Sean King having inserted himself into something that had nothing to do with him in this case, which, you know, makes me think, okay, like, you know, hit dogs hollering, like, why are you inserting yourself into this if she didn't call you out directly? Um... He said that she was putting her anger at the wrong people. Sean King said that, you know, she has the right to um, be upset and to be skeptical, but that, you know, racism has made it this way for her to be so upset and that she should be, you know, she shouldn't be working against these people who, in his mind, are working for her. Okay. Um, Mrs. Rice also called out, like I said, the Black Lives National group. Um, saying that a lot of the money that's being raised in the form of fundraising is not going toward the families whose um, children, in many cases, like, you know, she's she was um, Tamir Rice's mother. It's not going to them. They are not receiving the funds that are being raised. And one of the things about donating to a national group is that oftentimes there's a lot of administrative overhead and, you know, things like that. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Another person who was a parent of somebody who was killed from... Um, police violence was Mike, Mike Brown's father. So his name is Michael Brown senior and Michael Brown senior is demanding $20 million from the $90 million that the black lives matter national group made, um, over the last year, especially, but definitely since 2014. And if you remember Mike, the death of Mike Brown, in this case, Mike Brown jr. Um, was a huge catalyst for the black lives matter movement in 2014, which started as a grassroots organization, does still have local chapters, but has become, you know, a really national polarizing group. And there's been a lot of talk I've even seen in the last, especially in 2020 in the summer of people questioning, you know, well, who's in charge of this organization and where's the money going and things like that. I do want to say that organizations should not be living off of the funds that are raised, right? And people who are the, um, you know, board members or chair people, you know, whatever they call themselves, they shouldn't be living their whole lives and living very high on the hog, becoming rich from the death of other people. So like I said, many people have called out some of these larger organizations and questioning, you know, one, how much money is being made and two, where is that money going? Now, I understand and a lot of other people understand that there are administrative overheads and salaries that are paid to people who are doing the things behind the scenes that you and I don't necessarily know about, right? Because we may not be involved 
um, in in a significant way of questioning or knowing or you know spending time researching these things. So of course there money is being spent to rally people, to organize people on the ground in the communities, to have people write statements, speeches, uh, um, hiring attorneys or other lawyers, people meeting in different parts of the country, plane trips, etc. because all these things cost, right? Moving costs money. And so there, of course, is going to be money that is spent on those things, right? However, the families of these people who are being profited off of, right, the death of Tamir Rice, the death of Mike Brown Jr., the death of, um, you know, Breonna Taylor, these people, they should, the families should not be wanting for anything, right? They shouldn't not have their homes be paid off. They shouldn't not be receiving the money that people are donating to the larger organization because of what they heard about that family member or what happened to this person in this city or this state, right? Or, you know, in Ferguson, which is in St. Louis or in, um, you know, in any part of any other state. So this is very significant. Um, I think that they should have these things and especially at a minimum should have their homes paid for any organizing that they are a part of as a result of their children's death should be funded. The work that they're doing should be funded from these larger organizations, because like we just said, these people are making 10, these organizations, which I mean by people, but these larger national organizations are making tens of millions of dollars off of the death of that person's family member. And I want to bring it to your attention, something that some people may not know about and the reason why I say like their housing should be provided for or paid off by these larger organizations etc is because um, Rosa Parks didn't have her home paid off right there are people who were part of the larger civil rights movements who struggled to pay their own bills as they got older in society and sort of got forgotten even though the work that they did and the very real danger that they put themselves in um, could have resulted in their death. So in the case of Rosa Parks, Damon Keith, who was the founder of Little Caesars Pizza, paid for Rosa Parks's apartment um, after she was, well, he moved her into a different apartment after she was assaulted in her apartment and robbed at the age of 81. So um, that's something a lot of people don't know about or even think about, right? So that's why, to me, um, you know, these national organizations should should pay these people, but at a minimum should make sure that they are given either the money to pay off their homes that they're currently living in or um, give them money to move to a different area that if they want to get out of that city, obviously, if there's um, a lot of pain surrounding still being in that same city where their child was murdered and relocate. And bringing up Rosa Parks, um, because she's obviously somebody who's a huge noted figure in the civil rights movements from the 1950s and 60s. But respectability politics was a huge reason why we know Miss Parks' name, but not, you know, the people who um, did the same thing she did before she did it, right, as part of the movement. There are always people who organize on the ground and put themselves in physical harm's way, but they're not always in the photos or national figures. 
um, or they're not always in the photos to become national figures, right? Um, they're not people whose names we know of. Now, the reason why I call it respectability politics, top politics, that is because sometimes this has to deal with class. Sometimes it has to do with colorism, right? And we're talking about within the black community, um, in this case, and within different communities as well, right? Like, because colorism is something that um, all groups deal with or featureism, like all groups deal with that to their own degree. Um, and obviously um, in different capacities, but in the case of Rosa Parks, she was not the first person to refuse to sit at the back of the bus. So Claudette Colvin was the first person who refused her seat, but um, she was only 15 years old at the time. And she was a you know a high school student, so she wasn't considered as impressive of a figure as Miss Parks, who was already an accomplished adult. Um, an NPR article I read there um, where Claudette Colvin, you know, as an adult, had said that you know she felt like Miss Parks's um, like looks sort of played into why she was selected to be the face of the Montgomery bus boycott. But yeah, Claudette Colvin was the first person to refuse her seat in the city. So one of the things I also want to talk about is woke woke culture. And, you know, a lot of times we use the term woke or other people identify other people as woke. And we know that, you know, quote unquote woke is typically used when somebody is credited with knowing a lot about a situation, especially if they are not from that group themselves. Um, but unfortunately today, right. And what I mean today is in modern times, it's really become a profit wagon and that's very unfortunate. Um, I did see some (sighs) troubling things, but, um, during a lot of the riots that were happening, I think it was in the twin cities, but I'm not hundred percent sure there were people who were, you know, filming music videos during the riot. Like there were people who were, you know, standing on top of cars or in front of, you know, stores that were being looted and they were, you know, either singing or like lip syncing like they were singing and making the gestures that they were performing who, you know, who ended up using that footage to make music videos. And I understand that, you know, hip hop at at its roots has been about protest. But the problem now is that we have so many people who are becoming famous or becoming known artists as a result of this, but who aren't really doing the work or who aren't from the cities that they're, you know, filming these things in. Um, There are a lot of artists who use their platform, especially people who have had a platform for a long time. And that's not new. It's not, you know, special to hip hop. There are plenty of people even in acting. Right. And, you know, in this case, non-black people like Marlon Brando, Jane Fonda, plenty of people who've advocated for natives rights, disability rights, black rights, you know, different groups um, who've used their platform and access to media but we have a lot of people who are now, you know, able to, you know, if they're able to get in front of the camera, make themselves new celebrities and make their entire living off of the protest that they're doing. So they're writing books, they make thousands and millions of dollars, you know, on a national level, or even, you know, as an individual, t- t- thousands, or I would say tens of thousands of dollars, 
um, from the pain and murder of other people's children, but they're not giving those families any of the proceeds that they're making from those bookings, events, speaking engagements, seminars, and the books that they're writing. And a lot of people have called into question some of these, you know, more known figures that I just mentioned, but I will loop back around who have made all this money, you know, sometimes billions of dollars who live in high rise penthouses, who charge, you know, universities and schools tens of thousands of dollars to do, you know, um, racial, I'm um, like, what do you call it? Diversity and inclusion seminars or, um, you know, r- anti-racism talks at these campuses and community events, charging tens of thousands of dollars for these things. But that money again, like, you know, um, Mrs. Rice and Mr. Brown are pointing out, aren't making it back to the families whose events, um, excuse me, who these people have made their large amount of money off of talking about, right? So if I were going to be going to Berkeley to talk about the death of Tamir Rice, yes, I am an academic professor. So at some point, yeah, I can give my opinion about that. But if I'm able to quit my job and just do speaking engagements off of the death of this woman's son, that's, and I'm not giving her any significant part of that money, that is completely disingenuous and it is wrong. And of course it's right for these people in these families to call these people out for doing that. To me, in my opinion, I think the best way Um, to support a lot of these organizations is to donate to notable organizations that are grassroots or have local chapters. So there are local chapters of BLM, which is the acronym for Black Lives Matter, that you can donate to, right? Like Black Lives Matter Sacramento or Black Lives Matter LA. And I feel like if these chapters are in your city, it's much more accessible for you to go to those chapters, read pamphlets from those chapters, go to events that they are hosting and ask them where the money is going when it's donated, right? Questioning what percentage is going to the families. And it's the same thing with grassroots organizations. Um, donating to grassroots organizations or even if you don't have money to donate and you'd rather do time or if you you know don't have the money and want to do the time, um, Going to these events and seeing, you know, okay, I watched some, not me in this case, but if you watch someone donate a bag of clothes at an event and then they take that bag of clothes and, you know, organize it and put it out to hand out to people, then you are watching in real time that they're giving people everything that they are getting in that moment, right? So it makes it a little bit more tangible for you to um, know exactly what's going on, but um one of the best things in this case about social media is that it cuts out the middleman. So you can donate to people's GoFundMes who are the family members who are left, who are fighting or advocating for justice to ensure that that family has whatever it is that they need, whether that be, um, you know, if a family member loses their job because they didn't have enough, that's a whole nother thing, girl, but you know, they didn't have they weren't given enough time to grieve their child or to grieve their sister. And so they had to quit their job or they were fired. And if they want to use that donation, the donations that they get to help, um, you know, pay their mortgage or their rent while they're looking for new employment. Great. That's what they should use it for. Or if they want to, um, if they don't have a life insurance policy and want to be able to have a funeral service or something for their family member or open up a scholarship or do whatever, or relocate the family. If they're worried about their safety, then you can donate to those families, um, 
GoFundMes and make sure, or, you know, their cash app or however you do it to make sure that they get the money directly. And that's one of the best things about social media and a lot of these apps that we can do and you can use on our phones is that we can make sure that the money, a hundred percent of it is getting to the family who needs it and who you are identifying with in that moment and want to help them in that way. I did that um, with Brianna Taylor's family. Plenty of, I did, you know, research to make sure it was the right um, GoFundMe page. So plenty of reputable sources will post the official GoFundMe for the families and you can always verify those. And I donated there to her family directly as opposed to going through an organization. I did the same thing for another young woman. I can't remember her name, but she was at a protest. I believe it was in D.C. And she was arrested at a Trump rally after the gatherers who were there uh, assaulted her and then she fought back. So she was arrested for fighting back. The people who assaulted her were not arrested for assaulting her. And I donated to her GoFundMe for her legal fund because she was going to need to hire a lawyer. And um, I believe she had said that, you know, she was having problems with her employment because she had been in jail. One of the scary things about activism also is that, you know, there are a lot of people who have done the work of grassroots organizing um, whose names, like I mentioned, we'll never know, who don't get positioned on the national stage. Um, who are found dead, right, after um, the cameras leave so and after the press goes home. So there were a lot of Ferguson protesters who were found dead. And some of these people, um, you know, they were already city organizers, but they and they were already there fighting for justice before, you know, the Mike Brown situation happened in Ferguson. They'd already been doing that work. And the problem is that you have all these people, a lot of people who are coming in, like Mrs. Rice said, in ambulance chasing, who are flying into town, getting on camera. They're not from the community, right? They're not from those cities. They haven't been working with these grassroots people. And a lot of the people who did have those grassroots, you know, organizing already had gotten for had been forgotten weren't able to share the work that they had already been doing so it could be built upon which is huge for any real meaningful justice and who were left out of the wind and i'll explain in a second but um not people not being from the community is a problem just like when people assume that blm were vandalizing buildings during some of the protests this last summer and looting from the buildings just because they seemingly were dressed like the other blm people right or they were wearing similar t-shirts anybody who has studied social activism knows that there are always detractors in any given group there are always detractors there are always people who are put there intentionally to do things that are going to cause a problem to justify the violence that these people are met with. Um, some people noticed the same thing in a lot of these protests over the summer that some of the people who were supposedly some of these protesters had, you know, they were wearing like certain color bands on their arms or they had ear clear earpieces. It was like, they're clearly, you know, part of some other organization, whether it be, it might not even be the cops, but they're a part of an organization because they are, identifiable if you look really closely and they are able to identify each other that's very very important and it's not right that people who are the organizers who've been doing all that hard work are left out and um left out to dry you know like i said after the press goes home so like i mentioned there are a lot of ferguson protesters who were found dead after you know everything after the spotlight stopped being in the area um 
some people were found in their cars. Some people were classified as having committed suicide. Um, and it was never, you know, the investigation never went further than that. It's like, oh, well, they died. Oh, well, they um, committed suicide. Oh, well, you know, whatever. And people weren't able to really question, well, why are these people being found dead? And how come all of a sudden these people who had been doing that grassroots work were found dead? Um, some of you may remember Edward Crawford. And again, you may not know his name, but you probably know the picture. So he was the, he was photographed. Um, throwing a tear gas can back at the cops and he had dreadlocks. So the cops, you know, deployed the, the gas can into the group, into the crowd. He picked it up and threw it back. Um, he was found dead, um, in his car. So, you know, his picture lives in infamy, right? I mean, organizations still circulate that picture, but again, back to my main point here is his family being compensated from the use of that image future textbooks or thought pieces or articles online or newspapers, books that'll be written in 20, 30, 50 years. Is his family going to profit from that? No, because the person who took that picture owns it. That's how copyright works, right? The organization, and a lot of it is owned by either Getty Images or Associated Press, right? But you know, if whatever organization owns that photo is the one that licenses it out. So they're the ones making that money. So, you know, to talk about not even just like an organization that um, is rooted in protest, but even news media, like are, is the media paying their family for the use of that image, especially when that man was found dead? Is his family being given any of the proceeds from that image to make sure that, you know, they feel safe, that they can mourn their loved one, that they receive at least some sort of financial settlement in this case from um, his image being used? That's important stuff. So um, I'll say I think that the real reason a lot of people are skeptical about these for-profit protesters and um, commentators, I'll say, maybe not for-profit protesters, but definitely for-profit commentators who make their money off of commenting on protest is because, like I mentioned a few times already, they're not often from the communities, but they are being labeled as such. And it's also important to look at who's uplifted into in the media to be able to have that platform to have that voice to have that microphone to write those articles to do these seminars etc y'all know what i'm aquarius rising so you know um <laughs> i want to bring it on home here is that a lot of the activists from the 19 you know 60s and 70s um especially you know you think about like black activism so the black panthers a lot of them are either imprisoned or in exile so there are many of them who are in prison, in federal prison right now for protesting for rights and activism from, you know, decades ago. A lot of them had to flee the country and either never came back or, you know, were only able to come back um, after a very long time. People who fled to different African countries, some of them who fled to the Caribbean, um, but they are huge for that time period and their work, whether you, whether you agree with, you know, their manifestos or their demands fully, the work that they did led to liberation in new ways, right? Even though it, the fight obviously continues, but they're not on the media channels, right? They're not being interviewed publicly or consulted publicly for their well-earned opinions on current events. They're considered public enemies of, you know, even the FBI. They were on the most wanted lists. 
So I'm skeptical as to why other people in the media today are being uplifted and able to keep showing up for events and being these people who are constantly commenting on activism um, and constantly have the mic in their hands rather than having to hide for fear of their lives or their safety, right? So it sort of makes me think, okay, well, what about them is so palatable that it's okay for them to be making money off this, right? Why is it that they're able to um, call for liberation, but they don't have to go into exile because nobody's chasing them, right? They're not being deemed as public enemies of the government. They're just seen as, you know, people who are commenting on politics or social activism, et cetera, and that they're able to make so much money from it. So hopefully that makes sense. And like I was mentioning before about platforms, a lot of these people are not passing the microphone, so to speak. They're, they're not passing the microphone to these families. They're not passing the microphone to these um, grassroots organizations or other people who are from the community because they're making so much money from it. So it's almost like the clout culture is ruining the real activism. And that's exactly why I mentioned the respectability politics before, right? Because of course, somebody who's grieving the death of their child is going to be potentially a lot more angry, a lot more, um, you know, less palatable to people who are buying into that respectability politics, just like, you know, the difference between Claudette Colvin and Rosa Parks, right? People might not want some of these people to have the microphone because they consider them to be too loud, right? Which is especially we know that is a stereotype that's already placed on black women, especially dark skinned black women um, who or don't want to give the microphone to the fathers because they sound too angry or they, you know, they have strong accents or they don't come from educated well-off families like all of this is very relevant I believe to why these people aren't able to advocate for themselves to talk about what they want as a result of the death of their own child and or other family member I say if you're skeptical of any organization the best thing to do is to ask questions Right. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. And if you find that they're not answering your questions or trying to make you seem like you're a nuisance for doing it, then that is your answer. Right. Um, you can find other organizations to give your time, resources or money to. And also, of course, if you're not from the community, then you need to make sure that you're doing that questioning in a respectable and respectful tone and manner. Keeping in mind that being from the community is not just about your color or race, but also location. So I'm not from Los Angeles. So if I were going to be questioning an organization in Los Angeles, um, even like, let's just say it's a black organization, right? Um, I need to come correct. As we say, I need to come in a respectful way because yeah, I'm black, but I'm not from Los Angeles. I don't have, I'm not invested in the lived experience day to day of black Angelenos in this case, because I don't live there. So if I'm going to question, um, you know, how they run their organization, where my money is going, et cetera, et cetera. It needs to be done in a very respectful tone because I am not from there, right? These things are also very important when you're thinking about questioning, especially if you're not from that cultural or racial group, right? Um, you want to make sure that you're asking it in a way that is respectful and that you can get your answer and know that if there is any pushback, it's not because you didn't come correct. 
Now to circle it back around to, I mentioned um, Sean King in the very beginning of the podcast, right? My issue with Sean King is that he has in the past, allegedly, I guess I have to say, been publicly frustrated and has allegedly threatened legal action against black women who questioned how much money he makes, where it goes, and how he has funneled money into his own account from the pain of other people, right? Now, there is speculation on whether or not he's even black. That's not necessarily important to me, right? Because you can advocate for groups of people that you don't necessarily belong to, but comma, right? If he's if he's keeping money for himself and he's not being transparent on where that money is being quote donated to, and then he's threatening the black people who are he's threatening legal action on the black people who are asking him those questions even in respectful ways that's a problem it's easy to find out i mean if any of you post him like i mentioned it's easy to find out where he gets his sources from and then go like and comment and follow those people go share those people's snippets on their instagram um or their twitter with the people who you follow or want to know about an event you don't have to post sean so you can use him because if he or he is a valuable voice he gets to amplify other people's voices that's just the way it currently is you know, however you feel about him, but you don't have to necessarily put so much stock in him that you don't, you know, um, check out like, well, who's he citing? Right. Um, and if you notice that he isn't, um, you know, if he's just supposedly finding all this information out on his own, that's, that's not, that's not true. That's not, it can't be. None of us knows exactly where all of the information is coming from, right? Somebody, of course, there's other people who talk about it at the same time and, you know, before you and after you and things like that. But like Sean King, just like me or anybody else, isn't doing everything on their own, which is why I try to give you, you know, book sources and titles to go read and accounts to follow and things like that. Um, it's easy for you to do the same thing with Sean King. Appreciate the voice that he has, appreciate that he's able to amplify things, but go follow and comment and share the um, snippets of the people who he is reposting. That is one of the things um, I definitely am pushing toward because I think this is very important, um, obviously, which is why I'm talking about it. Um, Sean himself being a white passing person, because when I first saw him, I thought he was white. He gets access to spaces that darker complexed people, and in this case, men do not. Um, he's going to get the microphone. He's going to be booked more for events. He's going to be on the television more because of his complexion because of the phenotype that he physically has his physical you know looks when you look at him and it's the same thing with people who question the authors of books um i was reading something about you know people who are commenting how a lot of authors are writing books about race and racism and how to be anti-racist and but are questioning the authors of these books about you know well how much money are you making for these speaking tours right i mean these people are doing speaking tours all around the country they make books about it like i said even though they're from the dominant group who's enacting this racism and violence on other people so it is okay to question what money these people are making and where it's being donated to the victims of these events Right. As they're, you know, they're not just making the money from their book about it, because like, like I said, scholars can write books about whatever they study. 
I could write a book about anything that I studied, anything that I read up about, read up on, whether it be an article, if I were ever going to publish a book, things like that. But if you're able to quit, like I mentioned before, if you're able to quit your job and then charge tens of thousands of dollars to lead anti-racism workshops or, you know, workshops about white supremacy as a white person or, um, you know, anti-blackness within, you know, the Asian community or anti-blackness within um, the Latin community. And then you are, you know, quitting your job as an academic and only, you know, making money on these speaking engagements and making tens of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars over the courses of years and, you know, flying on private jets. It's like, well, you know, are you, is any of that money getting to the people who you're talking about your group doing those terrible things to, right? And then if it is, you know, you need to be transparent about how much of it is, right? And that's something that I think is going to vary by the individual, like what percentage, um, but at a national level, just to bring it all the way back to the very beginning, at a national level, there's no reason why an organization should be able to make $90 million and these people who are the family members who, you know, really were the catalysts, like I said, for a lot of the protests, a lot of the organizing that had been going on in the city, but at a national level when, you know, the media and those of us who don't live in that immediate area were made aware of what was going on in that city, there's no reason why those families should not be getting that money. So I hope everything was pretty clear. I hope that I was able to make sense and sort of give you all something to think about. I don't have any book recommendations or articles per se, because I wanted to really focus on um, the importance for grassroots organizations. But it's very easy to even use social media like Facebook or Instagram. I don't have a Facebook. Um, (laughs) I got rid of it in early 2017. So um, it's easy for you to use your social media platforms to look up, you know, hashtags, um, you know, when, unfortunately, right, like when these things do happen to look up the hashtag to research grassroots organizations. I know in San Diego, um, I really like Polititexts, which um, is at P-O-L-I-T, let's see, I-T-E-X-T-S, right? <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to spell it, but I really like that page. Um, and they repost a lot of things in San Diego that are grassroots events like clothing drives, um, homeless encampment drives. So, you know, even posting, um, she does a great job of posting, um, like where to buy sleeping bags, right. For $10 a piece at Dick's Sporting Goods or at Big Five or anywhere like that. And then where to donate it to for that to be given to homeless people or groups and organizations that are, um, you know, giving those items to people at community parks and say, like, okay, we're going to be on this corner and this corner downtown, or we're going to be over here in, um, Southeast community fridges are another great thing that you could look into. A lot of cities now are having community fridges where they have a refrigerator set up or some kind of a pantry. And some of you may know of the idea about like those like free book setups where people will just like leave a book and take a book. It's like a community library. So it's the same idea, but it's a community fridge. So they have frozen items, um, non-perishable items and, um, some refrigerated items. And then people who need it can just go through and take what they need for their family and, and eat because food insecurity is a huge issue. Um, Donating money to those people's local grassroots organizations, um, cash apps, um, what did I say the other one was? GoFundMes, whatever. 
is huge. And, you know, one of the things I also learned through Polititext and that which I give them plenty of credit for is calling out when organizations have members on them who are doing, saying or harbor um prejudices against the groups that they claim to help right so i'm not going to say specifically but you can look it up on Polititext. but there was a group in san diego that was giving food away to homeless people but one of the people who was one of the co-founders of that group um had a lot had a long history and a current history of saying a lot of anti-black things and tweeting a lot of anti-black things and so of course people were questioning well how is it that you're serving how do we know you're serving the homeless population in an effective way if you believe that certain certain racial certain people from certain racial groups that you're helping are inferior to you and the group itself didn't want to do anything to um you know have that person distanced from the organization (laughs) so you know again like that's about questioning and holding even grassroots organizations accountable to say you know what if you say you're going to help these groups of people then we expect those things and if we find out that you're racist homophobic sexist you know then we're going to tell people who follow our accounts and who ask us what are reputable organizations. You're no longer going to be a part of that list. We all have to hold um, our local chapters accountable, just like we do the national chapters. So I'm going to go ahead and end the podcast as long enough. Um, but I hope you all have a great rest of your day or night and I'll see you on the next one. Bye.